mountains. Well, there's no doubt what mountains they're talking about. They're talking about the Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee. We love our Smoky Mountains in East Tennessee. For a number of years, my family and I lived in Knoxville, and we spent a lot of time up in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, the boys and I uh, would love to go up there backpacking. We'd, we'd go into the back country, and we'd pitch tents, and we'd fly fish for trout. And I'll tell you, those are really some special times. The mountains are especially beautiful in the spring when everything's blooming. And about this time, when the fall colors start to show up, the Smoky Mountains are really pretty. You know, just the size and the scope of those mountains, it just, it just kind of puts you in awe to think about God's creative work in creating those grand, beautiful mountains there in East Tennessee. It's just really an impressive thing. Uh, something else that, I mean, you, you can, in, when you're up in the mountains and in the back country, away from all city lights, there's no so-called light pollution there at all. And you can look up into the night sky and it just seems like there's, you just can't even imagine all the stars that you see in the sky. Did a little research about that. And of course, we here are occupants of the Milky Way galaxy. And they tell us that there are approximately, they don't know for sure, but somewhere on the order of 300 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. But the Milky Way galaxy is just one galaxy. They say there may be as many as 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Can you imagine? Can you, and so what I'm talking about here is the grand, massive scope of God's creative work. It is so impressive. And we are just, again, awestruck by considering the power of God in creating these things in such massive, enormous scale. So you can see God's handiwork when you look at the night sky and when you see all the stars. In Psalm 119, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. And that is absolutely true, isn't it? It's certainly absolutely true. But I want to suggest to you that you can go to the other end of the size spectrum and also see God's handiwork. Let's say that you happen to be up in our Smoky Mountains in the springtime when spring flowers are just blooming in abundance and you're hiking in the back country there and you see a beautiful little wildflower by the trail's edge and you stop to pick it up. And when you pick up that beautiful wildflower, it's just amazing. It's always amazing to me that God did such beautiful work in places where people very seldom would even see it. Here's this beautiful little wildflower, and you pick it up, and it's just, it's just perfect. Everything about it is perfect. God's handiwork is on display there, isn't it? But I, I tell you what you can do with that wildflower that blooms in such abundance in the wild. If you took and pulled the petals back on that wildflower, as you looked at the inner parts of that flower, the parts that you might not see normally, but when you take and begin to peel it back, the inner parts of that flower are perfect too. Everything's perfect about that. I'll tell you what else you could do. You could take that flower and you could put it under a microscope. And as you begin to up the power of magnification of the microscope, the closer you looked, the more perfection you would find. In fact, if you were to take that wildflower and put it under the most powerful microscopes that men have ever invented, and you were able to see clear down to the cellular level of that tiny wildflower, 
even at the cellular level, you'd find perfection. Here's, here's a point that I want to build our argument upon tonight. If God made it, it's perfect. And it doesn't matter how closely you look at it, if God made it, it's perfect. Okay? Now, I want, to, I, want to con, I want you to contrast that to something that men have made. So I'm gonna, I want you to imagine that my watch here, that this is an expensive Rolex watch. This is not a Rolex watch. This is a 995 Walmart watch. But I want you to imagine this is a Rolex watch. Maybe some of the finest workmanship that men are capable of performing. Boy, you look at that thing and it just looks great, doesn't it? But let's say that you take it apart, take the back off. If you got a Rolex watch, I probably would not do that. <laughs> but let's say that you did. You take, the, you take it off and you start taking your Rolex watch apart. Man, it looks pretty, it looks really good. I mean, that's precision workmanship inside this Rolex watch. But let's say you put that under the microscope and you begin to up the power of magnification. You know what's going to eventually happen as you increase the power of magnification? Those sharp little points and pins in there will begin to look like the blunt end of a stake. And those highly polished surfaces inside your Rolex watch, they'll begin ultimately to look like the cratered surface of the moon. Here's my test. Here's a test I want you to consider. As we said before, if God made it, it's perfect. It doesn't matter how closely you look at it. If God made it, it's perfect. If man made it, on the other hand, you look close enough and you'll ultimately begin to see the flaws. Is that a simple enough test? You got, the, you got the idea of the test in mind? All right, with that test in mind, let me suggest that we put, this may not work. Are we not going to have PowerPoint? Not going to have PowerPoint. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> I need PowerPoint for this. <laughs> uh, you guys are going to have to really work with me now because this, 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 this lesson is highly graphic intensive. So you're going, to have to, you're going to have to work with me on this. I want to suggest putting the Bible under the microscope. And again, remember the test. If God made it, no matter how closely we look at it, we'll find perfection. But if man produced the Bible, if it's just simply the product of human invention and imagination, then we will find flaws in it if we look closely enough, okay? So that's going to be our test. We're going to put the Bible under the microscope tonight. Let me stop here. Before we go any further into this, let me stop here and thank you uh, for coming out on this stormy Wednesday night. You know, we... We, at supper, Alan told us, I asked him if everything was good at work today, and he said it was. He says the lights are on, aren't they? And they're not now, Alan. So I don't know what that says about your work today. Uh, but uh, we're glad that you're here. And I want to take just a minute to thank you all, the elders in particular, and all of you all for inviting me to be here during Gospel Meeting this week and, and to work with you. Uh, it's been very encouraging to me, and, and I hope it has been to you, and I hope that some good and lasting benefit will result for the kingdom's sake right here at Oak Mountain. Thank you so much for inviting me and for all the kindnesses that you have shared with me. All right, again, you're going to have to work with me on this. This is going to be a little bit harder since we don't have uh, the, the, the computer graphics to illustrate what I want. I want to suggest we put the Bible under the microscope in an Old Testament text that we typically are inclined to skip over. 
Go with me to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, we, we see one of those genealogies. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so, and on down the line. And the names are hard to pronounce, and uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, we just, I'm just going to skip over that and go to the next chapter. I don't want to skip over it tonight. Let's read in Genesis chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Uh, no, 21, excuse me. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. Genesis 5, 21. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 180 and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 785, excuse me, 782 years and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years and he died. And Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old and, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, now I was going to try to map this out for you on the screen, but, but work with me on this. We want to try to, we want to look at the comparative ages of these men as things happened in their life. So according to verse 21, there in Genesis 5, according to verse 21, a man named Enoch had a son and named him Methuselah. Enoch was 65 when Methuselah was born. He named his son Methuselah. Methuselah. You know, in a list of names that's sort of odd, Methuselah stands out as a, 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 a particularly odd-looking name. Now I'm sure you know that in those days when people named their babies, they named them with a meaning to the name. The names had meaning. We don't do that so much. These days when we have a baby, we just pick a name we like and we name our children that. But back then when they named their babies, the name meant something. So we would guess, without even investigating, we would guess that Methuselah, the name Methuselah, probably means something. Well, who named him? His father, Enoch. Now here's what's interesting about Enoch. Look in your New Testament at the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, verse 14, Jude 14, Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. So on it goes. I just want to make reference to that to note that it says that Enoch was a prophet. So Enoch was a prophet and he named his son Methuselah. According to the Hebrew scholar Thomas Newberry, the name Methuselah means when he is dead, it will be sent. Or when he is gone, it will come. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Why would you name a boy that? When he is dead, it will be sent, or when he is gone, it will come. 
the prophet Enoch named his son Methuselah. All right, hang on to that for a minute. I, I, my guess is you're racing ahead of me already here. Hang on to that for a minute, all right? So now, now look at a little bit more of how this breaks down. It says, uh, I'm going to skip some of this because we don't have a, the chart to visualize it, but skip down to verse uh, 28. In verse 28, uh, it says that Lamech lived 180 and two years. He begat a son. He called his, no, that's not the verse I want. Let me back up here a minute. Uh, let's, let's read in verse uh, 23, all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch didn't die a physical death. He was translated, sometimes we refer to it, when he was 365 years. And Methuselah lived 180 and seven years and begat Lamech. So Methuselah was 187 years older than his son Lamech. Now hold on to that for a minute. You're going to, maybe some of y'all get your calculators out so you can add this up. So when, when Methuselah was 187 years old, Lamech was born. Now look at verse 28. Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat a son and called his name Noah. So Lamech was 182 when Noah was born. Methuselah was Noah's granddaddy. So Methuselah had Lamech, he was 187. Lamech had Noah when he was 182. Putting those two numbers together, we can calculate, it doesn't say it in the text, but we can, simple math, we can calculate. Methuselah was 369 years older than Noah. You got that? It's not hard. It's, uh, and it, it's, it's better if we could visualize it, but we can calculate that. Because we know we just add 187, Methuselah, 187, Lamech's born. Lamech's 182 and Noah's born. Add 187, 182, 369. Methuselah is 369 years older than Noah, his grandson. Now, the reason why we know that, I, I said earlier that the name Methuselah is sort of an odd name. Even in a list of odd names, it sort of stands out as an odd name. And it has a meaning, as we pointed out. But we know Methuselah, right? We know the name Methuselah because he stands as the, the oldest man of record. He lived longer than anybody else. At least he lived longer than anybody we, else we have record of. Every once in a while, you hear someone talking about an old fellow, and he says, oh, he's as old as Methuselah. Well, he may be old. He's not near as old as Methuselah. 969 years old when he died. Now, Methuselah was 369 years older than Noah. So how old was Noah when Methuselah died? Well, 969 less 369. Noah was 600 years old when Methuselah died, right? Now, as I said, I think some of you probably raced way ahead of me on this. What happened in Noah's 600th year? Well, look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 11, 
of Genesis, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the 600th year of Noah, the flood came. That was the year that Methuselah died. What did Methuselah's name mean? When he is dead, it will be sent. When he is gone, it will come. So named by his father, Enoch, who was a prophet, Enoch had prophesied the coming of the flood when he named his son Methuselah. That was an event almost a thousand years off in the future. And yet, it all fits together. It all works, right? Now, my point about this is, as I said earlier, I think very typically we might just pass over Genesis chapter 5. I don't really typically enjoy reading those genealogies. But what have we found here? We've found a little hidden perfection in the text. Again, you might read over that. And if you didn't take time to add up the numbers, and it's kind of interesting to do maybe a little more thorough mathematical analysis of that text. Uh, but you might read over that, and if you didn't take the time to do the math, it just wouldn't even, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even register with you. But when you take the time to do the math, you find out there actually is a little hidden perfection in the text. What was our test? If God made it, no matter how closely you look at it, it will be perfect. If man made it, you, if you look closely enough, you'll find a flaw in it. What do we find here? We found the workmanship of God, and it's perfect as we imagined it would be. What if those numbers didn't add up, by the way? What if supposedly Methuselah lived to be 975 years old instead of 960? Supposedly the text says he lived to be 975, but the flood came when he was 969 years old. Well, that would, that would be, a, that would be a, a contradiction, an inconsistency. It wouldn't be perfect, right? No, it's got to be perfect. The numbers have got to add up. And the fact of the matter is they do add up. And so we see that little hidden perfection in the text. Well, let me draw some lessons from that. And, I, and again, I wish that we had had the, the, the computer graphics to sort of drive that point and the numbers home a little easier. But I hope that you've got that. So what, what would be some lessons that we can take away from an analysis like that? Well, first of all, I want to suggest to you that this, this sort of a thing, this sort of an analysis provides evidence for our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. As God's people, we should be ready to defend the Bible. We should be ready to give an answer when someone says, oh, you know, you all put so much confidence in the Bible. I see you carrying your Bibles around all the time. I know you read your Bible. Why, are you, why do you put so much stock in the Bible? Well, we need to be able to answer that. And we need to be able to give a ready answer. This is a book from God. This is not a book that men dreamed up. This is a book from God. And there's all kinds of proof of the inspiration of the Scriptures. The perfection of the Bible is one of those, one, just one argument about the inspiration of the Bible is it's perfect. There are no contradictions. 
And that's really amazing when you stop to think about it, that the Bible has no contradictions in it, because we know that the Bible was written by about 40 different human, and I like to call them human penmen. They weren't really authors. The Holy Spirit was inspiring them as to what to write, but they were writing it down. About 40 different men wrote various parts of the Bible. They wrote over a period of about 1,500 years. The oldest, the oldest parts of our Bible date back to about 1,500 years before Jesus. And of course, the New Testament dates to the first century AD. And so over a span of about 1,500 years, these men were writing. What that tells you, of course, is that they were not able to sit down around some big conference room table somewhere and say, okay, now you write this and I'm gonna write this, but we gotta make sure we agree with what we write. They, they didn't even live in the same time frame. Some of them knew one another, but many of them did not know one another. They didn't even all speak the same languages. And yet when you put their finished work together, it is a perfect harmony without contradiction. How, how could that be? Just explain to me, how could that be? The only way that it could be is because God was guiding that process of inspiration. Back when I was in high school, we had a teacher. We all kind of liked this teacher. His name was Mr. Goins. Mr. Goins was the, we had him for U.S. history. And uh, he, he, was, he, was a, he was a fun guy. He was one of the football coaches. He was the wrestling coach, great big burly guy. And so one day in U.S. history class, we had just gotten started. We weren't, we weren't more than five minutes into the class and the door bursts open and a man runs in, yells out Mr. Goins' name, shoots him with a pistol. Mr. Goins falls out on the floor. The man turns and runs out. There were about 30 students in the class and we were all just dumbstruck. We were just sitting there with our mouths open. Nobody jumped up to try and grab the guy. We were just all sitting there, just, I mean, we just, we, we, we couldn't speak with that loss of word. After about 10 seconds, Mr. Goins jumped to his feet and says, take a blank piece of paper and a pencil and write down everything you can remember about what you just saw. And so we did, he gave us just a couple of minutes to do that. And then he collected the papers up and he went through and he started to read them. So here's about 30 students who had all just seen exactly the same thing and none of our accounts agreed with the other. We all contradicted one another. He actually had the man come back in we hadn't even, none of us had even accurately described the fellow who did the shooting. He shot him, by the way, with a starter's pistol. You wouldn't try that in a school today. I'm going to tell you, anybody try a trick like that in a school day would get thrown under the jailhouse. But uh, it was a different time. But, but the point of it is, here, here were 30 people who just saw, immediately just saw the same event. And we, could, we contradicted one another when we tried to tell the story. How did these 40... Bible writers agree perfectly when you, compile, when you compile all their writings into one book that we call the Bible, how is it that it's a perfect harmony? I'm going to tell you the only way that that could be so is because God was guiding that process by inspiration, right? That is a proof for us. And so in this little hidden perfection we saw in Genesis 5, but really all the way through the Bible, there's perfection, perfection, perfection. You can't find a flaw. And remember, that's the test that we put forward. If God made it, it's perfect. 
If man made it, there'll be some flaws in it, but if God made it, it's perfect, and the Bible is perfect. And so I want to suggest to you that there is evidence for our faith in that story. Something else, another lesson that I would take away from the story of Methuselah and Noah's flood is that God patiently waits for sinners to repent. Now get that, God patiently waits for sinners to repent. In Genesis 6 verse 3, uh, uh, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that, his, that, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. I think most people when they read that take it to mean that God had determined that he was going to send a judgment upon the earth, but it seems clear that he said, I'm going to send it 120 years from now. Wonder why that delay? I think one easy answer for why God delayed the sending of the flood for that long is because I think it quite literally could have taken Noah that long to build the ark. I don't know if any of you have been up into northern Kentucky and seen the new ark exhibit. I see some heads nodding. I haven't been there yet. We, some of our brethren at home have been and they are all very impressed. I want to go. I haven't been yet. They're, they're impressed with just the incredible size of the thing. Think about Noah building that ark without the advantage. I, I think Frank said you supplied some of the timbers, didn't you, Frank, for, for that ark. But you had a lot of machinery to do that and to transport it and to erect it. Can you imagine doing a job like that without all of the modern machinery that we would employ to do a job such as that? It was an incredibly huge assignment. It may very well have taken Noah 120 years to get it done. So that may be the simple answer. Why did God postpone the sending of the flood so Noah would have time to build the ark? But I'm going to tell you something. I think there's more to it than that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 1 Peter 3, verse 20, it says, The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing. No, God, the long-suffering of God waited during that time. And that is, so there, some, the, the, the long wait had something to do with God's long-suffering nature. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah wasn't just building the ark. He was preaching God's righteousness. God in His long-suffering nature was waiting. Noah was preaching. You know, the idea seems clear to be that God was hoping that maybe some would repent at the preaching of Noah. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want anyone to be punished. He didn't then, and He doesn't now. God is a loving and merciful God. And so I would argue that Maybe that 120-year delay in sending the flood was not only so Noah could build the ark, but so that Noah would have time to preach. And that just maybe someone would listen to his message and turn to God. Because God doesn't want any to perish. God's always been that way. That is the nature of God. But think about this. So as God waits a little longer and a little longer and a little longer, you know what else is happening? 
Methuselah is getting older. As God waits and Noah's preaching, there's Noah's granddaddy over there who's getting older and older and older. And the prophecy has already been laid down. When he's gone, it's going to be sent. But God is long-suffering and patient. He doesn't want anyone to, put, to perish. And so he delays the flood. He delays the judgment. He puts it off longer in his long-suffering nature. And as he does that, Methuselah just keeps getting older and older. Right? We see that God patiently waits for sinners to repent. But I want to tell you something else about God. And while He's a long-suffering and merciful God, there is an end to His patience. There is an ultimate end to His patience. In Genesis 7, verse 21, we, re we referenced this the other day in one of the lessons. When the flood came, Genesis 7, verse 21 says, All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both a fowl and cattle and beast, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. Every man, with the exception of Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, everyone perished. God gave them opportunity. Noah was preaching righteousness. God was long-suffering in his approach. He was waiting, hoping that some would repent and not suffer that judgment. But there finally was an end to his patience, and the flood came. I want to tell you that part of God's nature is also unchanged. He's merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient, but there's an ultimate end to his patience. Look with me again one more time at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. In the, uh, as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And so just like God waited in the days of Noah, God waits now with the hope that men will come in repentance, turn to Him, and be forgiven. That's a great, that's a great attribute of God. It's amazing to me how patient and long-suffering He is. It's just almost un inconceivable, but there is an ultimate end to his patience and his judgment will come. All of that being true, I would conclude by suggesting there's only one thing then that ultimately matters. There's only one thing that really matters. Jesus referred to this in Matthew chapter 24, beginning verse 37. Matthew 24, beginning verse 37, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as, in, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered in the ark, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Notice, watch ye therefore, you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Think about those people in the days of Noah. They were, it says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. We know that the world was very wicked in that time. But they were also just so involved in their own busy routines that they had excluded God from their thinking. You can sin by eating and drinking, but not all eating and drinking is a sin. You can marry and give in marriage, and there are some unlawful marriages, but not all marriages are sinful. These people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage 
until the day that Noah entered in the ark. And they knew not, it says, until the flood came and took them all. Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know? They didn't know because they weren't paying attention. They could have known. Noah was out there preaching God's righteousness. They could have known, but they weren't paying attention. And the flood came and took them all away. And the message that Jesus has by referring to, by the way, just a thought about that. That story about Noah, is that legit? That whole Noah and the flood thing, is that, is that really true? Is that just a fairy tale? No, it's true. Jesus lends the verification of that story when he referred to it here, didn't he? Jesus said the story of Noah is true, right? And the takeaway for us is, watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. We need to be ready. So, again, in the story of Noah and that genealogy leading up to the flood, I, I've, I've always been intrigued by the fact that the numbers add up and prove, again, just in one tiny spot, we see the, the perfection of the Bible, but the Bible is perfect through and through. There's evidence there. Furthermore, we see about God. He's a patient, long-suffering God, but He's a God of justice. He will not wait forever. Judgment will come. As it did in the days of Noah, it will come in our time too. Or I'm not saying in our lifetimes, but for us. I'm, please let me back up on that. I'm not predicting uh, the imminent return of Christ, but I'm saying just as it came in Noah's day, it will come in the end as well. God will send His judgment upon disobedient men. That is in the nature of God and His justice. So the takeaway for us is be ready. And our question to you tonight is, are you ready? Have you taken the steps to be prepared for what is certain to come? The Lord is returning in judgment. Are you ready? We prepare for that by obeying the simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done that, we hope you make that decision without delay. We'd be glad to assist you in your obedience tonight. And I know if you have questions, more study can easily be arranged. Be ready for what is certain to come, the judgment of God. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen back and you've not been faithful, Come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Jesus, draw me.